If you did your homework this week, and I hope you did, the title of the chapter was Pathway to Holiness. In the past weeks, we have talked about the definition of holiness. We've talked about the motivation of holiness. We've discussed the example of holiness. And then last week, we talked about the enemy of holiness. This week, things are about to become very practical as we talk about the pathway to holiness. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3? We are going to be looking up a ton of verses this morning, but this is where we're going to start things off. Colossians 3, verse 1, says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Jump down to verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What is the pathway to holiness? How is it that we live out our holiness? Okay, next semester after the holiday break, we are going to be studying the topic of spiritual disciplines, which we very purposely picked out to follow up this course. And in that course, we're going to be looking at exercises and disciplines that we can incorporate into our lives that will help us chase after holiness. This morning, however, we want to jumpstart all of that and talk about two primary components that are involved on the pathway to holiness. And we see them in verses 9 and 10. Take a look at that where it says, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All right, now this is a pattern that we're going to see all through scripture. Some preachers will refer to it as the replacement theory. Others will call it the glorious exchange. And it's the idea that w as a believer, we're to stop one behavior, we're to, we're to put off old sinful behavior and turn and and replace it and put on new put on new christ-like behavior when i was in the seventh grade i was a new believer if you would have asked me about my holiness i would have described it to you in terms of what i didn't do didn't smoke didn't cuss didn't cheat didn't skip class those were the big ticket items back then and i didn't do them okay but scripture says, oh, wait a minute. There are two sides to this coin. Okay? Number one, leads us to our first point. Number one, the pathway to holiness is a glorious exchange in that sinful desires and habits are rejected and exchanged for Christ-like graces and actions. All right, that is a fancy way of saying that our pursuit of holiness is going to comprise of putting off and putting on. 
putting off old behavior, turning and replacing it with Christ-like behavior. And I have that on your paper. Now, this week, we are going to be concentrating on the putting off part. All right, it's, it's a two-part deal. Next week, we're going to talk about the putting on, but we're going to divide it into two lessons. So if you leave here today and feel like, you know, something is missing or that um, something's just not adding up, you're right, okay? We have to, um, we'll have to do part two. And is that the week after the next, right? Okay, two weeks from today, we'll do that. All right, that brings us to our next point, number two. Another word for putting off is mortification, which means to kill or to put to death. Mortification. All right, now that's spiritually speaking. Mortification relates to how we deal with sin and the battle that exists. All right, now when it comes to holiness, notice it's half of the equation here, so we need to understand it. All right, let's start by defining what it is we are to put to death. All right, look at verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, if you have been coming to abide for any length of time, you will know that we've, we've talked about our three enemies before. We've, we've said that the enemy of our souls, the enemies of our soul, are number one, Satan. That's the one you most immediately think of. And then there's the set. Number two is the world. That's the kingdom Those are the spiritual forces that Satan rules over. And then the third is our flesh. Those earthly, fleshly desires that still live in us. You see, God has chosen not to fully remove the presence of sin from the redeemed. Right? That's something we look forward to. But until we are glorified, there is a remaining sin presence within us, and we refer to it as the flesh. All right, now, if you take a look at those three enemies, I have them on your paper there. We are repeat, there is one that we are repeatedly told to put to death, and it's the flesh. Now, we are in battle with all of them, and we'll talk more about that. We're in battle with all of them, but we are given very clear instruction about the flesh. We're to kill it. We're to put it to death. John Piper puts it this way. He says, Christianity is war on our own sinful impulses. Now, this morning, we are going to do something a little bit different. I have printed out a passage for you, and it should be um, on the tables with you. I've done that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I want us to have two different passages in front of us as we go through this. And then second of all, I want you to be able to mark this passage as we read. There is so much repetition in this passage, and I want you to be able to see the the point that it makes and just how rich it is. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read through that passage for you, and as I do, I want you to mark it. When you come to the word God or God gave or Lord, I want you to put a triangle over that. All right, that's just a good habit to get into. Anytime you're reading God's word and if if you're marking it, watch what God is doing. You want to, so God's a good word to mark. I usually use a triangle. All right, the next thing I want you to do is when you see the words struck or edge of the sword, I want you to put a line through it, strike through that, however you want, but just put some kind of strike mark on it. Okay, and then the third thing I want you to mark is every time we come to the phrase utterly destroyed or left no survivor, I want you to circle that. Now, I have those those three categories on the top of your paper for you. All right, so you're going to, we come to the word God, we're going to put a triangle over it. 
the word struck and with the edge of the sword, strike that. And then the last one is um, utterly destroyed and left no survivor, survivor circle. Now, if you really want to kick this up a notch, you can underline every time you come to a city or a geographical location. I usually double underline geographical locations. Okay, but now if, if that's too much, that's okay. Just kind of stick with those three things. All right, here we go. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. <clears throat> he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. The Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel and he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor in it. Thus he did to its king just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and they camped by it and fought against it. The Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it, and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua defeated him and his people until he had left him no survivor. And Joshua and all Israel with, his, with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they camped by it and fought against it. They captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it, according to all that he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it. They captured it and struck it and its king and all its cities, and all the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor, according to all that he had done to Eglon, and he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. Then Joshua, verse 38, Then Joshua and all Israel went with him, with him returned to Debir, and they fought against it. He captured it and its king and all of its cities, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Just as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he had also done to Libna and its king. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed. Just, now watch this, just as the Lord the God of Israel had commanded. Now you might want to underline that part because all of this that he is doing is in obedience. Verse 41. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea even as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen even as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. There is a ton of repetition in that passage. Even stuff that we didn't mark is repeated over and over again. Now you might be thinking, why this passage? This is a passage we usually read on autopilot, isn't it? What 
can we possibly learn about holiness from this passage? I mean, this is a passage about extreme brutality. Oh, ladies, this is going to teach us how to deal with our flesh. If we were to do a thorough study on the book of Joshua, we would learn that this book is historic. Joshua was a real person. The battles were real. The battles were physical. Now, you and I know we don't do battle like this. Our, our battle is not against the flesh. Okay? We, don't, we are not to go into schools and neighborhoods with, with knives and swords in the name of Jesus. That's not, how we, that's not how we battle. Our battle is spiritual. But the book of Joshua is still a battle guide. You see, we're going to be able to look at what happens in the real physical battle with Joshua and apply it to our spiritual lives and our spiritual battle. All right, so here's what we want to do. Let's start by looking at some of the words that you marked. Edge of the sword, struck, left no survivor, utterly destroyed. Okay, listen, those are extreme. Those are violent. Those are radical words. Now, why is that? Because this is a chapter about the repulsive, offensive nature of sin, and God is judging it. God is judging the sin of the Canaanites, and he's using Israel to do it. Now, here's the battle lesson. We won't ever be on the pathway to holiness if we don't hate sin. We will never be on the pathway to holiness if we are not radical and extreme and brutal with our own flesh. Here's our next point. Number three, the pathway to holiness requires a hatred of sin and a violent, drastic assault on our own flesh. The Puritan John Owen is the one that famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Listen, Joshua knew when he was on the battlefield, it was either kill or be killed. Now, I want to point out some things. Anytime we are talking about being violent or brutal, we are talking in spiritual terms. Okay, so we're talking spiritually. That's A. B, we're also talking personally. Okay, you are not in charge of killing someone else's spiritual flesh or judging someone else's spiritual flesh, okay? This is, this is all about ourselves. Now, in Joshua's case, his enemies were physical, and God told him who they were. God told him. He, he gave them the instruction about that. Now, does he do that for us? Yes, of course he does. All right, look back at Colossians. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here we go. Sexual immorality, impurity, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. All right, God's word is defining for us who our enemy is, what our enemies are, what those deeds of the flesh are like. Now, last week we talked about some of the enemies. Elsewhere, we're, we're told things like jealousy, bitterness, unforgiveness. Those are deeds of the flesh. All right, scripture is defining what those deeds of the old self are. All right, so that brings us to our next point. Number four, 
Mortification requires that we identify the enemy. Obviously, if we are going to put something to death, we need to recognize it as an enemy. And God's word teaches us that. Okay? Listen to what Henry Blackaby writes. He said, Could I dare say to you that you are not in the presence of God if sin is not being exposed? You may simply be practicing religion if sin is not exposed. All right, he is saying that if you are in the presence of God, your sin is going to be exposed. Your enemies are going to be exposed. You're going to be convicted of your sin. But he's also saying that if your sin is not being exposed, if you're not identifying the enemy so that you can put it to death, it may be that you're playing at religion. You see, because one of the ways that you're going to be able to identify a true believer is that they're putting their flesh to death. All right, here's our next point. Number five, mortifying the flesh is evidence that we are children of God. Or listen to what John Piper had to say. He said, if you are not making war on the flesh and not making a practice out of killing sin in your life, then there is no compelling reason for thinking that you are united to Christ by faith or that you are therefore justified. All right, both of these men are saying that if a person is not interested in identifying the enemy so that they can put it to death, their faith is suspect. Because believers are going to make war on their flesh. All right, now Joshua... He knew his enemy. And then over and over again, we are told that he struck with the sword. He utterly destroyed. He left no survivor. He was commanded to be relentless on the enemy. Now, what about for us? What are we to do? Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, usually when we read this verse, we concentrate on the last part about Jesus being our advocate. Okay, because praise God, we have an advocate. But this morning, we don't want to miss the first part, and that is it's giving us the goal for holiness. The goal is that we may not sin. All right? The, the goal is that we utterly destroy, that we leave no survivor. Okay? No sin. The goal is not less sin. The goal is not less sin than our neighbor or the fine people in your Sunday school class. That seems like such an honorable goal, but listen, it's not the biblical goal. The biblical goal is that we may not sin. The biblical goal of holiness is to be holy. Now, are you going to fail? Are we going to fail? Yes, yes, but we have an advocate. And our goal is to be like him. Our goal is to be holy. Brings us to our next point. Number six, we mortify our flesh because the goal of holiness is no sin. 
No sin. You could also put in there, utterly destroy or leave no survivor. If you do any type of research this, these days on, on health, on being healthy, on living healthy, there is great emphasis on the way that our emotions impact our health. They're telling us that uh, if we have unforgiveness and anger and bitterness in our life, it's, it's, you know, we're not going to feel good. If we want to feel good, if we want to be healthy, we need to deal with those things in our life. And uh, so consequently, there are tons of websites that talk about this and then they give tips, they give ideas. How do you deal with anger, forgiveness, and, and all those things? Okay, and some of them sound very good. But, but, I, but I want to remind you of something. We are not called to make improvements on our flesh. We're called to kill it. We're not called to make improvements on our anger and our bitterness and our resentment. We're called to kill it. We're not called to maintain a healthy level of flesh. We're called to put it to death. Leave no survivor. Utterly destroyed. Now, how do we do that? And how is it different from the things that we read on the secular websites? Well, we want to do two things. We want to go over the theology of it, and then we're going to get practical. All right, the theology of it. Look at verse 30 on your paper there. The Lord gave, verse 32. The Lord gave, verse 42. The Lord fought for Israel. How was Israel able to deal with the enemy within their land? God fought for Israel. God fought for Israel. We're told that over and over again. And yet, we're also taught, it also says that Joshua fought. And Joshua captured. You see, the only way that Joshua was able to even fight his enemy was that he was fighting in union with God. Look at the bottom. I have this verse on the bottom of your paper. Romans 8, 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay? By the Spirit you put to death. You might want to underline the word you put to death because that indicates responsibility. John Piper puts it this way. He says, when it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait passively for the miracle of sin killing to be worked on me. I act the miracle. Ladies, we act the miracle. We have a part in it. We have a responsibility. God does the fighting. It's not carried out in our own strength. It's carried out by the Spirit. All right, look also. I have Galatians 2.20 on your paper. That says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Ladies, if you have, God, God may have left remaining sin within us, but he did not leave us alone to deal with it. If you have been crucified with Christ, you are no longer under the penalty of sin, no longer under the power of sin. You live by faith 
in Christ. Christ lives within you. The power of the resurrection lives within you. Do you know what that means? That means that Christ does your fighting. It means that you have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have been equipped to say no. Okay, notice it says, this means your battle is physical. No, your battle is not physical. Your battle is spiritual. <laughs> Look what it says. It says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. You don't fight the flesh with the flesh. You fight it in the spirit. You fight it by faith. Number seven, next point. In union with Christ and by faith in Christ, we mortify our flesh. We act the miracle. All right, that's the theology of it, the very short version. I want to get practical. Let's start by the way Joshua dealt with his enemies. What did he do? He struck with the sword. And that's repeated over and over again. He struck with the sword. Now that is what you would call a very decisive, a very deadly action. There was no uh, conversation. There was no negotiating. That would have been too dangerous. So the enemy, it comes into view. It was identified. He struck it with the sword. Now, how do we apply this? Well, let's imagine one day that you're out and around and you run into a friend and you look and you notice and you think, she looks like she's been working out. She looks really toned. And then you, you notice and you notice she's got her nails done. You go, wow, she's so put together. How does she have time to do her nails? And then you catch sight of she's got some new boots on. And you're thinking, oh man, I am wearing boots from three seasons ago. <laughs> and you know, just in a flash, those little thoughts of jealousy and coveting start coming into your mind. Now what do you do? Do you ignore it? No. You're going to put that to death by the Spirit. First thing, you're going to start by setting your mind on the things above and the things on the spirit. And you're going to recognize, you're going to identify, wait a minute, that's jealousy. That's coveting. And that's on the kill list. And so I'm going to put that to death. I'm going to say no to that. You're going to strike it. You're going to utterly destroy. You're going to leave no survivor. You're going to be decisive. You're going to be brutal. You're going to be deadly. Now, how do you do that? Well, you know what? It might be something as simple as, as in your mind saying, no, that's sin. It might include something like you may have to bite your tongue or close your eyes or turn away or walk away or turn something off. You're going to do whatever the moment requires, but you're going to tell it no. And how can you do that? Because Christ lives in you. The power of the resurrection lives you. You have been equipped to say no. No more. Now, is that going to be painful? Oh, it might be. It might be. Listen to what J.I. Packer wrote. 
Jesus told us very vividly that mortifying a sin could well feel like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand or foot. In other words, self-mutilation. You will feel you are saying goodbye to something that is so much a part of you that you cannot live. You know, I can see some sins that are very easy to be repulsed by, very easy to oppose. They're usually someone else's. <laughs> you know, but, but our flesh, we love our flesh. Interestingly, we're told that Joshua struck with the sword. Now, if you know the pieces of the New Testament armor of God, we're told that the only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, we're going to talk more about this in the future. But, you know, we, we know, we think of using the sword of the Spirit. We think of using the Word of God when we're fighting the evil and demonic forces out in the world. But you know what, ladies? We're to take it to our own flesh. And that can be painful. All right, let's move on. If you underlined the geographical locations, you would have noticed that he worked through one area and then he moved to another area. He's very systematic, very strategic, very purposeful. Same thing with us when we're dealing with our flesh and mortification. Number eight, mortification is premeditated. Premeditated. Do you have a battle plan for how you're going to handle your flesh? Because you need to. One writer recommended that we know the chinks in our armor and we be, know what they are. Know your besetting sins and be ready for battle. Jerry Bridges says this, we begin by concentrating on the sins that so easily entangle us. We start there. And then he writes, we begin by concentrating on saying no to these. Then God will lead us to work on other sins which we may not even be aware of at this time. All right, think Joshua. You're in one city and you strike that and you deal with that and then God moves you to the next city and you strike it and you deal with that. All right, look at verse 30. It says, thus he did to its king just as he had done to the king of Jericho. All through this passage, you see Joshua. He strikes it. He deals with one city, just like he did the city before. And then he goes to another city, and he deals with it, just like the city he did before. And he goes to another city, and he deals with it, just like he did with the city before. Do you know that as you battle the flesh, you are going to require repetition? A lot of it. Our next point, number nine. The battle to mortify the flesh will be developed and reinforced by frequent repetition. You see, you're going to have a fleshly desire come before you and you're going to strike it and tell it no. And then a little while later, you're going to have another earthly fleshly desire and you're going to strike it and you're going to tell it no. And then you might go a little while later and something a lot like that first desire is going to come to your mind and you're going to strike it and you're going to tell it no. You're going to strike it and then you're going to repeat and then you're going to strike it and then repeat. You see, habits are formed by frequent repetition. And you are either going to be making habits for feeding your flesh or you're going to be making habits for putting it to death. And we need to put it to death. All right, next, I want you to notice in the passage, verse 29, 
It says, and Joshua and all Israel with him, verse 31, 34, 36, they all use that repeated phrase, Joshua and all Israel with him. Now, if you go throughout the book of Joshua, it's, it's a beautiful book in showing the emphasis of the accountability that the nation had with one another and the way they were to fight as one. You see, if, if one uh, tribe sinned, it affected the whole tribe. It affected the whole nation, excuse me. All right, now, that brings us to our next point because we need to, to consider the same thing. Ver, uh, point number 10, mortification is developed and practiced within the context of the body of Christ. Let me put that another way. We need each other. We need each other. How can we be helping each other live holy lives? Maybe that's something we need to be talking about. When I was a newlywed, my husband had this job selling cars, but he wasn't really selling cars. The, the economy was very bad. And so my in-laws approached him and suggested that he take uh, this kind of test to see if he could get into the unions as a journeyman so that he could become an iron worker, which my father-in-law did. And so my husband agreed with that. And so he went to his boss and asked if he could have some time off so that he could go take that test. Well, the boss said, no, that is a day of a very big sale. If you are not here, you will be fired. Well, my husband went home and told his parents, or my husband went and told his parents the situation, and they said, well, we think you should skip work and try to take this test. Well, my husband uh, had great respect for his parents, and so he, he did what they said. He skipped work, took the test. He did not pass the test. Because he missed work, he was fired. Because he was fired for not being at work, he did not collect unemployment. And so we were in a real mess. Because, like I said, the economy was bad, and now there's no job at all. And I blamed my in-laws. I was very resentful. I was very unforgiving. Now, I was nice to them in person. I'm talking about what was in my heart. And then I learned this delicious little thing. I learned that if I told that story to women, oh, it worked, man. I instantly had affirmation. They would tell me, oh, you poor dear. And they were just so sympathetic. I could be sitting in a room full of women and just tell the story. And it was like the room would become silent. People would lean in. They would nod. Oh, poor dear. Just it, it, I, I came to call it my magic story. Because I could tell it. It was just like people were hypnotized. And it, and it was wonderful. And then one day, many years later, I was having lunch. I'd invited a girl to my house. She was a new friend. She, I'd met her in Sunday school. And, and we got to talking. And I did what I do. I told the story of what my in-laws had done. And, um, and then she said to me, you, you need to forgive them. You... you you will not be forgiven if you do not forgive them. And you know, wow, I instantly, I thought of the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
You know the one where he is forgiven a great debt and then he turns around and does not forgive a small debt. And so he is uh, put into prison and he is tortured until he is able to pay off his debt. And I thought, that's me. I, I'm, the, I'm the unforgiving servant. I need to forgive them. Now, uh, what was I going to do? Well, one of the first things I thought was I have been telling this story for years and why is it she's the first one to call me out on this? She's the first one to, to point out my, she's the first one to point it out. But what did I need to do? Well, I needed to call it what it was. I needed to identify it as sin, that is sin. That is unforgiveness, that's bitterness, that's strife. I needed to call it what it is, and then I needed to confess it to God. I needed to agree with him, this is a sin, and then boom, I needed to strike it. I needed to put it to death. I needed to say no to it. And then I needed to do some premeditated mortification. I, had, I decided that day, okay, no more story. Not telling that story again. Because when I tell that story, it feeds my flesh. So you know how it goes. You know, it's not long later. I'm sitting with some friends and somebody's talking about in-laws and I get the thinking, oh, tell that story. Your flesh starts saying, you need to tell that story. Your in-law story is way better than that. You know, just <laughs> you know, tell the story. And, uh, and so what do I got to do? I have to say, I have to say, no. No, that is sin. That is unforgiveness. And you feed your flesh. Don't forget, unforgiving servant. Remember that parable. And I think on God's word and I tell it no. And, you know, and then some time passes and you get a chance, you're talking with some women and you think, I'll just tell part of it. <laughs> slip, in a, you know, slip in a little. No, what do I got to do? I have to, tell my, I have to tell my flesh, no, that's unforgiving. No more. And you know what you do? You get the urge to tell it and then you repeat and you say no. Repeat no. And you know what happens? After a while, you forget the story. You forget the story, and the desire to tell the story isn't even there. Do you know today, I adore my in-laws. I adore my in-laws. They're two of the sweetest, kindest, most enjoyable people you would ever want to meet. Now, what if I had carried that unforgiveness and told that story for 30 years. I, you know, I have to wonder what our relationship would be like. There's one last thing that I want us to see as we're to pursue the pathway of holiness. And listen to the way the author puts it. She writes, Mortification involves more than getting rid of things that are inherently sinful. It also suggests the willingness to eliminate influences that may not be sinful in and of themselves, but that could fuel unholy thoughts or behavior and thereby lead us into sin. It means cutting off every possible means to sin. All right, that's what it means to utterly destroy and leave no survivor. It means that posting on Twitter may not be inherently sinful, might not be anything inherently sinful about it, but it may be something that you can't do. It may be that something is morally neutral, but you can't do it because it fuels your flesh. 
if you are to leave no survivor, if you are going to utterly destroy, it's going to mean cutting things off at the root. I, I want you to listen to what Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, deal with the first motions and movements of sin and temptation within you. Deal with them the moment they appear. The first movement is enticement, a slight stirring of lust and enticement. That is the point in which you deal with it. That means if you sit down to look at Facebook and Pinterest and you begin to have some slight stirrings of coveting and jealousy, that is the time that you strike it and you utterly destroy and you leave no survivor. It means that if you're getting magazines or you see one in the doctor's office and you begin to look at it and you begin to have these slight stirrings of ingratitude or maybe a lust for more and more, that's when you strike it and you utterly destroy and you leave no survivor. It means that if you're watching a TV show and you find yourself lingering a little too long on a certain male character and you're thinking, oh, I wish my husband treated me like that or I wish my husband looked like that, that at the slight stirring. That's when you strike it with the sword, you utterly destroy, you leave no survivor. You strike it, you call it what it is. You tell it no. It may mean you get off Facebook, you throw out the magazines, you cut off cable. You do what it takes to be holy. And you might have to become radically violent with your own flesh. Jerry Bridges points out that you never let an exception occur. You never say, just this once. Oh, just this once. Mm -mm. That's the opposite of utterly destroying and leaving no survivor. Now, he does say this as to encourage us. He says, don't be discouraged by failure. There is a vast difference from failing and becoming a failure. We become a failure when we stop trying. Be encouraged. One last point, and that's number 11. We must mortify our old, corrupt, sinful way of life and everything that might fuel its growth. Fuel its growth. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, will you help us be women that are in your presence and recognizing sin and recognizing the enemy? And then would you help us strike it? Father, would you help us to just learn to say no to our own flesh? And remind us, help us to know what it means to have the power of Christ in us to do that. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. No abide next week. Two weeks from today, you'll be on chapter 6.